Hello, I'm Cathy Harvey, and you're listening to Inspiring Women, a podcast series from Oxford University's Said Business School. From startup entrepreneurs to CEOs and myth-busting academics, we're tuning in to the stories and insights of female leaders in their field. In this edition, we meet one of the world's preeminent Shakespeare scholars, Professor Emma Smith. Here, Emma lifts the curtain on Shakespearean theatre and the role played by women, if not on the stage, then in the growth and excitement surrounding Elizabethan theatre. One of the things I have so enjoyed about the invitations to come and talk here uh, has been the prompt to think myself about the relations between uh, a deeply commercial artistic world, the world of the Shakespearean theatre, and to try to think a bit about how uh, economic models or business models, uh, the commercial world of the theatre is really intrinsic to the creativity, the amazing literary creativity of that period. It's a really good example of what must be true, in fact, which is that art and creativity really do only exist within some kind of commercial framework, a supportive economic framework. Uh, if you are creating something, you know, in your garret uh, that nobody is prepared to perform or publish in a kind of tree falling in the forest with nobody hears it kind of way, perhaps you're not actually creating it. So the, all the art and the literature that we know about uh, and that we think of as the great, great resources of our culture, they have been produced hand in hand with an economic world of some sort uh, or another. And that's particularly true of the Shakespearean theatre, which begins in 1568. There are no purpose-built theatres. By 1599, there are probably uh, seven or eight, all in London. And this industry goes from, from sort of naught uh, to 60 or whatever the, uh, whatever the gauge should say, uh, really, really quickly. Uh, and one of the things that I think is so fascinating about Shakespeare and his contemporaries, his contemporary playwrights, is just how uh, enormously this industry is changing, its practices are changing, and the creative output is, is really uh, linked with that in some, in some wonderful ways. Now, I was asked to contribute to the school's celebration of and kind of provocation about uh, the role of women in society uh, for this talk. And in some ways, I thought my topic is not so great for women. As we've all seen Shakespeare in Love, we all know women were not allowed, or, or maybe upstart crow, we all know women are not allowed to perform in the theatre however much they want to. That theatre seems to be a world of uh, male writers, male actors, and perhaps even a largely male audience. Uh, what I'm going to do is sort of find some uh, gaps around that to talk about uh, how women do contribute to the excitement and the growth of, uh, of theatre as an art form and as an industry. But I thought I'd start by thinking about the ways in which the big absence of women from this topic is their absence from the stage, from public performance. Uh, it's interesting that we don't exactly know why women were not allowed to perform uh, in the Shakespearean theatre. There is no formal prohibition. There's no legal uh, problem. It seems to be one of those cultural norms. It's quite a sort of cautionary tale in a way. It seems to be one of those cultural norms that's so ingrained that nobody needs to tell people to do it and nobody thinks actually to challenge it. 
Nevertheless, there are uh, voices about the common practice, the ubiquitous practice of men playing uh, the roles of women, men playing women's parts on the stage. And it's one of the wonderful ironies, we're going to see it throughout this talk, that an awful lot of what we know about the power of the Elizabethan theatre comes from people who were disgusted by it and who recorded their disgust in sermons and other kinds of conduct literature. So lots of the things I've got, which are about how powerful theatre was, are people uh, decrying that and, and deploring its, it, uh, its terrible immorality. This is uh, John Reynolds. I started with him because he's an Oxford man. He was the head of Corpus Christi. The apparel of women is a great provocation of men to lust and lechery. A woman's garment being put on a man doth vehemently touch and move him with the remembrance and imagination of a woman, and the imagination of a thing desirable doth stir up the desire. So Reynolds argues that stage plays uh, with this cross-dressed or kind of transvestite performance style uh, are deeply erotic in some very, very troubling ways, both for performers, uh, for troubling to him, uh, perhaps rather wonderful to us, but troubling to him, uh, both for the performers and for the spectators. So that's a, a kind of negative view of this. Here's a more positive one. Uh, this is Thomas Hayward, who is a playwright, uh, and he's trying to defend this practice and it, what he does here, I'm not going to read out uh, the quotation, which is always uh, a little bit annoying. But what he's really saying is, yeah, it's one thing to, to, to sort of uh, dress as the opposite sex or for a, a man to dress as a woman in, for some nefarious purpose in the, in the streets or to defraud somebody. But we all know when we go to the theatre, that's the deal. So nobody is being tricked. There's nothing uh, to worry about. Who cannot distinguish them, he says, assuredly knowing they are but to represent such a lady at such a time appointed. So Hayward's got quite an interesting take on the suspension of disbelief. Hayward says, well, we kind of go along with this in a theatrical context, which we wouldn't do elsewhere. Hayward's saying, this wouldn't be a good thing out in the world, but it's absolutely fine in the theatre. The theatre has its own rules, and we all know what they are when we, when we step in. And I thought I'd just give you this last one. This is from Thomas Coriat, who goes to Venice. Coriat's a wonderful, loquacious, eccentric traveller through Europe. Uh, he writes this huge, long book called Coriat's Crudities about all his adventures. And one of his great adventures is in, is in Venice, where he, he sees all kinds of uh, things and is chased down the street by courtesans and the Jews of Venice want to convert him and perform a circumcision and all this exciting uh, sort of cross-cultural excitement that he has. Uh, but one of the things he sees, uh, he goes to the theatre in Venice and Venice, like the rest of Europe, has no prohibition on women performing. Uh, and I love this. I, I really love what Coriat says. I saw women act, a thing that I never saw before, and they performed it with as good a grace, gesture, and whatsoever convenient for a player as ever I saw any masculine actor. And what I love about that is Coriat doesn't say, guys, I saw women playing women. Honestly, you've seen nothing. You know, it's fantastic. It's amazing. They're so good at it. Uh, it's a completely different thing when you see a play and the women are real women. Uh, you know, you've got to go to Venice. You've got to see it. He says, well, I saw this. Women were actually, you know, they weren't bad. They were nearly as good as men at being women. So there's no natural sense for him that for women to play women would be automatically better, more authentic, more enjoyable, more sexy, any of these things. Uh, that's not how he thinks about acting. And it always reminds me of a time I went to the um, Japanese, ancient Japanese, no theatre 
uh, when they came to Sadler's Wells. And the No Theatre is a very codified set of uh, stories, a kind of almost like a kind of willow pattern of stories. You know how, you know how you, we know what the story is on that, that China will, willow pattern. And one of the characters in the No drama is this innocent young woman. And the actor who plays that character is a man. The No, no Theatre is entirely played by men. But it's also a character that's played by the same man all through his career. So the man who came to Sadler's Wells to be the young sort of virgin was a man in his... 60s perhaps with quite a sort of pot belly and quite and and, and he was giving this talk pre-performance talk it was really really wonderful and then somebody sort of plucked up the courage to say isn't isn't it quite difficult for you to play the young sort of virgin and uh he had a really such a brilliant answer which was that you know that's what acting is acting is really being something that you're not it's not just sort of shifting along a degree you know, casting somebody who more or less is the character you've got and just getting them to, you know, do something slightly different or put on some different clothes. It's about completely, in some ways, suspending your own physical reality or overlaying it with an imagined one which you can convince an audience to take on. And so one of the surprising but I think unavoidable things about uh, the theatre of this period is it did not seem to feel the lack of women uh, on the stage. Uh, and that's you know a bit of a bit of a problem for, for us in certain ways, but there was not a clamour uh, apparently from women themselves or from theatre goers to say, uh, look, we really we really need to make a change here, or we could really uh, steal the kind of commercial advantage if if women uh, if women came. There's just one example, one counter example to this, uh, and it, it's an interesting document to me because of my interest in uh, commercial theatre. Uh, a trickster uh, at the end of the 16th century tries to persuade people uh, that there's going to be an amazing theatrical extravaganza at the Swan Theatre that they have to pay in advance in order to be able to go. And you can imagine what happens. I mean, he gets a bit of money. Uh, there is no extravaganza. Uh, and uh, he's, he's sort of chased along the street by the people who uh, want their money back. You can see that what he does in his playbill, his advertisement for this uh, non-event, is to really big up you know, everything that people might want uh, in order to make them uh, pay it. So it seems to me to have the same quality uh, for uh, you know, a historian of the 21st century as... Um, maybe a scam email might now to historians of the future. That's to say, it's not true, but the fact that it exists tells us something about what people do desire or what they would want or what they might be taken in by. The non-play is going to be called England's Joy. It's a big patriotic thing. It's got a lot of fireworks and explosions and devils dancing and all kinds of things. And there's one scene where it says, and men and women... Uh, dancing together and that's the only that's the only hint I've been able to find uh, that somebody thinks uh, it might be a kind of commercial advantage or an attractive proposition to say that you're going to have women performing that's the only one I have um, and the the vast weight of the counter evidence is that uh, extraordinary uh, parts for uh, female characters were written by the playwrights of this period which they expected to be convincingly conveyed uh, by male actors. Uh, there were some really, really good uh, male actors playing women's, uh, women's roles. And we can see that particularly in Shakespeare's career. It's quite evident that through the comic period of Shakespeare's writing in the 1590s, uh, he, he looks at the actors he has at his disposal and he has a couple of 
young men who can play um, sort of young, uh, slightly adolescent-y women, uh, and, and he writes parts for them. So that's why we get comic heroines like Viola and Olivia in Twelfth Night or Rosalind and Celia in As You Like It. But it's also really clear that by about 1656, uh, Shakespeare's company has somehow acquired a male actor who can carry extraordinary mature female roles. And for, for that actor, Shakespeare writes Lady Macbeth, Volumnia, the mother of Coriolanus, Cleopatra, who we'll talk about uh, in a minute, and uh, Webster, John Webster writes probably the Duchess of Malfi uh, and the White Devil. So something changes about the representation of women from the 1590s uh, in, into the first decade of the 17th century. And I think that's probably as much to do with the capability of the actors as it is to do with kind of wider uh, contextual factors. So the she-elephant in the room is that there aren't any women uh, on the stage. Uh, and that has some interesting, I think, implications uh, for the stage more generally. But we are starting, historians of the theatre are starting to uncover women as agents in theatrical production. There's a lot of interest, for example, in a woman called Ellen Burbage, uh, who's the wife of James Burbage, a theatrical entrepreneur, and the mother of Richard Burbage, an actor we're going to talk about uh, in a minute. And there's archival material that shows how actively Ellen was involved in the business uh, and in the wide range of business activities. We also know that uh, one of the things that is developing as this highly hyperactive theatrical industry is developing through the last decades of the 16th century, one of the things that develops is a new emphasis on costume. Earlier on in the period, it seems to be that the most important thing about going to a play is hearing the words. That quite quickly gets overtaken with an emphasis on visual spectacle, firstly through costume and to some extent through portable props, and then gradually through stage technology and special effects more generally. And the development of costume which began perhaps as a kind of second-hand clothes business in a way. We've got some evidence that last year's fashions or 10 years ago's fashions might be sold to the playhouse for them to clothe up their plays. That starts to get replaced quite quickly with a very active industry of seamstresses, wig makers, general kinds of theatrical costumiers around the theatre district. And lots of those businesses are run and staffed by women. So there are women sort of emerging from the archives as real players uh, in this industry. But one area where we know that women are absolutely crucial to the development of the theatre is as spectators, even, I'm going to argue, as fans, as the first fans. So I've been interested in thinking about this, about the discussions of celebrity culture and fandom, which are much more, tend to be much more focused on the mass media movements of the 20th century. But it's interesting to think what we can take back from those analyses of a very much later date to this earlier period. And I wanted to start with this. This is another of my disgusted clerics who give us this information about the theatre. I'm going to read this because it's quite important. So this is William Prynne. I've, I've given you a picture of him, whether that's actually what he looked like, but it's what he should have looked like. Um, <laughs> which is disapproving, I think. I shall annex the parallel example of a late English gentlewoman of good rank. This is Prynne in a long passage about how morality has really uh, fallen away, particularly women's morality. Who daily bestowing the expense of her best hours upon the stage, so going to the theatre a lot, 
and at last falling into a dangerous sickness of which she died, her friends in her extremity sent for a minister to comfort, counsel and prepare her for her end, who, coming to instruct her and advising her to repent and call upon God for mercy, she made no reply at all, but cried out, Hieronimo, Hieronimo, let me see Hieronimo acted, calling out for a play instead of calling unto God for mercy, and so closed her dying eyes. Oh, tragical, oh, fearful death, answerable to her former wicked life. So Hieronimo, Hieronimo, Hieronimo is the main character in an absolute blockbuster play of this period, which seems to me the key, the key text almost from the drama of this period, the Spanish tragedy. And I've said before, the Spanish tragedy feels to me like the kind of Star Wars of the Elizabethan period. That's to say, whether you've seen it or not, you know what it is. There are two or three short quotations from it that you can recognise. And there is a sort of visual image uh, that you can see and immediately feel, OK, that's a parody of Star Wars, even if you've never seen it. So that kind of cultural reach is what the Spanish tragedy had. And it's not surprising that Prin chooses it for his anecdote. So here we've got a woman then who is uh, so taken up with the theatre uh, that it's become the kind of context uh, in which she understands her, her life and her death. Uh, that what she wants to see uh, on her deathbed is another performance of this wonderful old favourite rather than uh, some more godly prayer. And I think Prin's interesting in giving us a sense that women... I, I, don't, I don't suggest this is, a, this is a real woman. Obviously, in some ways, this is, a, uh, this is an anecdote, a sermon kind of anecdote by Prin. Uh, but it nevertheless gives us an, an insight into a certain kind of female spectator who is thought to be excessive in their devotion uh, to the theatre. And there's lots of stuff from the history of a fan culture and celebrity culture, which particularly locates excessive devotion to the idol on women. And that also suggests that mass media spectacles, pop acts in the particularly, uh, I've read quite a bit about K-pop, more than I would have expected to read, uh, but, but a, a mass market phenomenon aimed particularly at young women or gen generating huge amounts of uh, profit from young women. I've also been interested in the sort of modern phenomenon that you might know as cumber bitches or uh, Hiddlestoners, you know, the female fans of prominent actors. And a lot of this, uh, these examples, but also the theoretical work, is, I think, quite astute in putting together a stereotype of women as over-avid consumers, uh, which is part of, you know, the, the literature of, of consumption more generally, and women as sort of over-engaged or over-emotional uh, spectators. And this comes together in this figure of the female fan, who has often been seen to be a figure created by the first matinee idols in the cinema, like Rudolf Valentino or something. And I'm not exactly saying that this happens 300 years earlier than we thought, but I'm perhaps slightly wondering whether the sum of that material, uh, very, very well documented uh, from the beginning of the 20th century in the development of cinema, which could be taken back to the development of the theatre with this much more sparse documentation. So the context I want to begin to then establish is one of uh, celebrity actors. And I've given a couple of names here. I wrote a book about Shakespeare's uh, first folio, the big collected edition of his plays. And one of the things I did was to go around looking at lots of different copies of that book and how uh, it carried with it the evidence of what people had done with it, how they had used it. 
And this text with the handwriting on it is one example of, um, I wrote a book about Shakespeare's uh, first folio, the big collected edition of his plays. And one of the things I did was to go around looking at lots of different copies of that book and how uh, it carried with it the evidence of what people had done with it, how they had used it. And this is the only one example, but I really like it because of that, where somebody is looking at the list of the actors at the beginning of the book and using that almost like you might use a program for a theatre, um, a theatre program or a program, I've actually seen this for a sports fixture or something. And the person has written about this long list of actors, know them, seen them, never seen them, heard of them, very good. So they're, they're keeping a kind of sense what these actors uh, are like and what their connection uh, with them is. The theatre broadly begins in this period as an ensemble unit. And the kinds of plays we get written for that ensemble unit are very uh, highly distributed in terms of the number of roles. It's partly why we get histories and comedies early in the theatre, because they tend to be roles where there's loads and loads of noblemen or loads and loads of uh, kind of funny people and that everybody's got about the same size part, that there isn't really a kind of star uh, function in that kind of ensemble or in that kind of play. And two things change hand in hand. It's hard to know which goes first. The uh, theatre companies become less collectives and more like companies in the hands of a, of a smaller number of people. So the, so the theatre organisation becomes more hierarchical. And the plays come to be about individuals, so that you have one person who's the star of the play, the character is the star, the actor is the star, and the other people are uh, secondary. Some names emerge uh, from a broader context of the kind of working actors as famous people, actors whose own persona perhaps trumps any character that they might be playing. That's to say, you might say, I'm going to see the new Richard Burbage rather than I'm going to see the new Shakespeare or something. And let's look at an example uh, of that here. There's only one joke about Shakespeare from his lifetime. It's not actually a very good one, but it's to do with his relations with this man, Richard Burbage. So Burbage is the lead actor in Shakespeare's company. Uh, and one narrative of the uh, success of Shakespeare's plays is very much this partnership with Burbage. It's Burbage that Shakespeare writes, Richard III for Hamlet, Othello, Lear, Prospero. These big characters are, are written, I think, by Shakespeare to showcase what Richard Burbage does really brilliantly well. Here's Burbage uh, playing Richard III. Upon a time when Burbage played Richard III, there was a citizen grew so far in liking with him that before she went from the play, she appointed him to come that night with her by the name of Richard III. Shakespeare, overhearing their conclusion, went before, was entertained, and at his game, nice, some nice bits of Elizabethan euphemism here, and at his game, Air Burbage came. Then, message being brought that Richard III was at the door, Shakespeare caused return to be made that William the Conqueror was before Richard III. Then John Manningham, who's a law student at this point, adds, just to be clear, Shakespeare's name. <laughs> William. It's a great anticlimax to the story in a way, he, because, not least because he never needs to say Burbage's name was Richard. We all know Burbage's name was Richard. Burbage is a much more famous celebrity in this anecdote than Shakespeare. 
I think that's an interesting insight because it gives us, again, I'm sure, not a true story, but something which has a kind of plausibility, which is about how women spectators in particular might react to a star actor and the idea that that star actor's performance might in some sense be directed particularly towards women. And I wanted to give a sense of how that might affect the play itself by looking at an example from Richard III. So if you remember this play, you may remember it starts with a soliloquy by Richard. Uh, he then is involved in getting his brother Clarence uh, sent off to prison. So he's beginning the machinations which are going to take him to the throne. And then the next stage in his uh, plan is to marry Lady Anne. Uh, so Anne is, is the widow of Richard's brother and the corpse in front of them that we can just see here uh, is the corpse of Henry VI, her father-in-law. So here is Richard, this is Anthony Sher and Penny Downey performing at the RSC in the 1980s. And uh, if you remember this scene, uh, Richard has the job of wooing uh, Lady Anne, who has every reason to hate him and getting her to assent to marry him. So it's an extraordinary bravado uh, scene. Uh, and if you've ever had a chance to see it, I mean, it rests very, very much on the charisma, how much we can believe in the charisma of Richard. It's a very, very uncomfortable, uncomfortable scene. And I started to wonder, thinking about the anecdote about the citizen woman, whether in some ways this isn't almost a kind of metaphor uh, for how the actor woos the audience more generally when Lady Anne has the chance to accept Richard or not, she's a sort of proxy for the audience who have to say, well, are we going to accept you or not? Are we going along with you? Whose side are we on? And Lady Anne makes this decision that, I guess she makes a pragmatic decision that really uh, she'll be destroyed if she doesn't go with Richard. And in some symbolic ways, so does the audience make that decision uh, too. Even though we see that Richard's attitude to Lady Anne, if we had any doubt about it, is deeply uh, humorously callous, was ever woman in this humour wooed, was ever woman in this humour won, I'll have her, but I will not keep her long. So the idea there, I think, is that maybe the seduction scene that we see uh, in the play is a kind of metaphor for a, an audience uh, seduction, and that that metaphor gets its own kind of literalization in that anecdote uh, by John Manningham uh, that I suggested. And once we start to see those uh, this scene here, we can see that there are lots and lots of parallel scenes where um, uh, prominent characters, dominant characters, that's to say dominant actors, um, early on in their plays undertake some kind of unlikely wooing in which the, the woman does ultimately uh, assent. And these all seem to me like sort of little parables or miniatures of something more general about the relationship between actors and their audiences. One of the changes that happens uh, in the theatre more generally and, and uh, in which women play a part and from which women are disproportionately affected, I think, is a shift from outdoor to indoor theatres. So the first theatres in London in the 1570s and 80s are built on the model of, of in-yards. They're open stages with a closed semicircle or hexagonal structure around them. So the yard, which is the cheapest place to stand, uh, is open to the elements, and then there are a, a smaller number of seats around uh, in these galleries. The thing about the outdoor theatres is they are big, probably with about between two and 3,000 spectators, that they are cheap, 
a penny to go in. It's a kind of mass business model, I think, where you can pay a bit more to have a more elite experience. You can pay another penny to be a bit further away from the crowd and a further penny to be even further away. So you can add on to a low base price. That feels to me a kind of easy jet kind of model, really, doesn't it? That the base price is very low, but anything you might want uh, is quite expensive on, to on top of it. So the outdoor theatres, we can overstate this, but I think broadly it's true. The outdoor theatres are quite a broad demographic. They're quite sort of rambunctious places. There's quite a lot of discussion about how actors can't make themselves heard over talking, how if a play is not liked, uh, it's pretty much booed off stage. Uh, this is quite a vocal, rough environment in certain ways. It's an environment in which women as spectators were all thought, if you're a woman who went to a playhouse like this, you were kind of no better than you should be. Uh, and that you might actually, if, if that's a phrase, that's quite an quite English phrase, uh, that's to say your own virtue was under suspicion because you were in this male-dominated public marketplace kind of environment. And in fact, most of the references to women as spectators in the outdoor theatre suspect that the women who go there are prostitutes looking for customers so that they're part of the entertainment industry, even if they're not on stage. Again, th that may not be true, uh, but it's certainly the current stereotype about them. So outdoor theatres, I think, have a majority of male uh, spectators. Uh, they're seen as part of uh, an entertainment district on the outskirts of London's city walls, uh, which uh, also includes uh, brothels and gaming and bear baiting and other pursuits which are almost certainly uh, very heavily male-dominated. They're male group-dominated. Now, the indoor theatres are a very different proposition. They develop uh, at the beginning of the 17th century. The most famous one is the Blackfriars. Uh, they're within the city. They make use of existing buildings. Uh, so they're a different, different structure. They're much smaller. Blackfriars probably had a capacity of about 400, something like that. And they're much, much more expensive. So a, an order of magnitude six or ten times more expensive than to go to the outdoor theatre. Many of the plays at the beginning were the same plays, but the environment in which they were being performed was completely different. And I think part of what the indoor theatre does, well, uh, one argument is that this is the gentrification of theatre that we are uh, still living with. This is the, it's the indoor theatres are the reason that theatre seems like an elite thing to do, an expensive thing to do, a middle or upper class thing to do, rather than the more the wider demographic who went to the outdoor theatre. So that might be quite a negative uh, theatrical history narrative. But what it also, I think, makes clear is that the indoor theatres are a much more appropriate place for respectable women uh, to visit. Uh, there's a little bit of evidence that the indoor theatres are looking for a kind of date night kind of uh, crowd. Uh, that's to say couples might go most likely to be uh, married couples. There's some evidence that it was an appropriate place for women to go, perhaps accompanied by uh, servants. And lots about the indoor theatre, the comfort, the fact that your uh, fine clothes were not going to get wet, uh, the fact that the, the rest of the clientele uh, were thought to be you know, more aristocratic, more upper class. This all made it a more uh, inviting environment for women. We can see that almost immediately the indoor theatres attract a large proportion of women in the audience. And I think what's more interesting is that playwrights start to write plays in which women feature uh, more prominently. 
So some of our evidence here, here's some of my K-pop young women, and uh, I think that's Jude Law having selfies taken with him as he leaves, leaves the theatre. I'm trying to do a bit of a kind of historical reconstruction, but I'm doing that in a very ahistorical way by thinking about a later period, a very different kind of industrial and commercial and social context in which we might think about women as fans or as culture consumers. One of the features of the uh, indoor theatres was that you went to them as much to be sort of looked at and to be seen, and that's something which we know continues through, you know, 18th century opera and all of those things. The indoor theatres were lit by candlelight and we see immediately a development of the fa of fashions for both men and women for iridescent kind of decorations to costumes which really come alive uh, in candlelight. Sometimes I think the audience at Blackfriars must have been absolutely blinding, sort of <laughs> flickering and, and kind of shining out because of all, all, this, all, all this kind of sequins and this stuff which, which responds to light. And this is from a play, from Philip Massinger's play, the idea that women, a city madam, uh, as Massinger puts it, uh, might go to the play to be seen and to enjoy becoming the spectacle that you're not allowed to be because you're not allowed to act on the stage. So here you've got a woman who is... Uh, imagining herself, I mean, it's a kind of double irony, isn't it? Because it's a, it's a male actor playing a woman, saying, I'm going to the theatre to take all the eyes uh, away from the stage towards me. But by 1616, by this period, there's a lot of commentary about women uh, going to plays. Uh, there's a lot of sense that in the conduct literature, which tries to regulate women's behaviour, playgoing is particularly identified as a potential kind of liberation for women or transgression for women. Uh, so it seems that, th that there is a, a sort of worry about women going too much to plays and experiencing uh, the, the physical freedom of being there, uh, but also perhaps the intellectual freedom of seeing what's on offer. Uh, why are women, says Robert Anton, grown, rather grown so mad that their immodest feet like planets gad with such irregular motion to base plays where all the deadly sins keep holidays, which I think is a great idea. I think, again, possibly he means that as a bad thing, but it could be a good tagline. <laughs> base plays where all the deadly sins keep holidays. There shall they see the vices of the times, Orestes, incest, Cleopatra's crimes. It's an interesting example in context because it specifically puts these women uh, spectators, these imagined women spectators, into a kind of dialogue with this very prominent female character, Cleopatra. I'm quite sort of tantalised by that kind of uh, encounter. What did women uh, think about Cleopatra? What did women think about a Cleopatra played by a male actor, written by a male author? Did they think well, you know, this, is a, this isn't very realistic or did they relate to Cleopatra? Did they see themselves uh, in uh, her situation? How might we understand that encounter? This is, again, a slightly pixelated thing to end with, but it's the end of a place. So I thought it was a good, good place to end. Uh, it's the end of As You Like It, when Rosalind, the central character, uh, steps forward to deliver the epilogue and she does it by identifying quite interestingly and quite unusually the differences uh, in audience members. I'm going to start about halfway down. My way is to conjure you, and I'll begin with the women. I charge you, O women, for the love you bear to men, to like as much of this play as please you. And I charge you, O men, for the love you bear to women, as I perceive by your simpering none of you hates them, that between you and the women the play may please 
If I were a woman, I would kiss as many of you as had beards that pleased me, complexions that liked me, and breaths that I defied not. And I'm sure as many as have good beards or good faces or sweet breaths will for my kind offer when I make curtsy bid me farewell. I think what's a kind of brilliant moment that I want to finish with here is that this is Rosalind, I think still in her male clothing, a male actor pretending to be a female character who is dressed as a man, addressing uh, an, a, an audience uh, that she, he uh, articulates as being divided by sex, divided between uh, men and women, and turning to women first and then men to talk about uh, how the play might affect them, uh, how they might re respond to it. And that point uh, between you and the women, the play may please, that seems a really interesting challenge in a way. What kind of a play would please between men and women? Emma then took questions from the audience. Why did the tradition of men playing women in the theatre begin? Somebody wanted to know. What's interesting about the question is that it's such a good question, given how little it seems to have been asked. You know, once you ask it, you think, well, why, why is that? It, it depends what you see the family tree of, of the Elizabethan theatre being. So if you see it in medieval sort of travelling theatre... It's hard to think, isn't it? I guess for sort of broader social and cultural reasons, men are historically have been more portable, more able to move around, more able to do... It's, it's, a, a kind of travelling life is not a brilliant life for women for lots of, lots of reasons. So that may be the reasons that they were all men. There's another line of sort of family tree which says these are broadly kind of religious or, you know, in some way liturgical dramas and that these are put, in, certainly in the late medieval church, these are performed by men. That's what leads into it. And the evidence, as I say, the evidence I have is that there isn't much, there isn't, doesn't seem to be much cooped up demand for that to change even though that, um, in our own sort of tropes of how that theatre must have worked, it is interesting that um, Shakespeare in Love and Upstart Crow and lots of these stories about, which are set in the Elizabethan theatre, have the, the, the woman who wants to break into acting as such a prominent character. For us, it's unthinkable that somebody wouldn't want to break into that. And for also for us, it's unthinkable that women wouldn't be better at playing women. But when you look at the transition, so women, when Charles II is restored in 1660, he's been in France during the interregnum and the French court and the French, French public theatre also has women in it and the, the theatre that's restored has women actors. And it does seem that the roles that people want to see women in are actually the roles where women play men. Partly, I think, because men's costume is much more revealing than women's. So you could see a woman playing Viola, playing Cesario in Twelfth Night, and you would see their ankles and their legs because they would be dressed in, you know, so they, so they would be a more kind of erotic figure. People don't seem to have been quite so keen on women playing, as it were, straight women. That doesn't seem to have been as thrilling. And this is what Emma had to say when asked about the idea of fandom being more particular to women and male disapproval. 
cultures of fandom is quite a well-established sort of subgenre in sort of sociology and cultural studies, and the kind of historiography and the kind of diagnosis or a dissection of, of fan cultures has tended to stress women's participation in those cultures uh, as being possibly dominant or that women have been more active in that realm than they have in other aspects of cultural life. So I think, I mean, I, I read this secondarily, this isn't my kind of area of research, but my sense of what uh, fan studies uh, has looked at, particularly in the 20th century, but, you know, the, the, the first cultural fan phenomenon usually is, a, is thought to be around Byron, Lord Byron, and it's partly because that's such a foundational kind of case study for, for fan literature, and that is very much directed at women, and it's very much about a kind of sexualized, desirable kind of central celebrity figure and, the, and a kind of sexualized consumption by women around, around that. So I do think that women are seen to be, and certainly the discourse around fandom particularly identifies women but you're right to say it does that in a way which is not completely separable from disapproval in all these different forms. Uh, it, it's long been a way to um, denigrate, you know, a kind of book or a, a kind of activity or a kind of profession, hasn't it, to say it's what women do. And so we have to be careful to think that um, by identifying fandom as a female thing, is that part of an idea of saying, you know, fandom is a pathology almost, you know, it's, an, it's, it's excessive and uh, negative in lots of ways. My evidence is, is also uh, difficult because clearly these disapproving male clerics are getting some rhetorical power out of these anecdotes and they don't mean them to be celebrations of women's kind of cultural agency but you can kind of read them a little bit against the grain and I do love that woman saying to the minister who's come and saying you know what about repenting on all your sins and saying what about a play what about Hieronimo you know there, there is something uh, rather kind of wonderful about about that moment so it may be that that's a possibility of reading the story against the context in which it's been set up but you're absolutely right there's a whole lot of ways in which this material is uh, is circumscribed and a little bit distorted by gender stereotypes, I think. You've been listening to Inspiring Women, a podcast series for Side Business School.